Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 24th of September 2018 and this is episode 82. On today's programme, I interview medical historian and curator Dr Ian Miller from the University of Ulster about the practice of force feeding during the Great War. I spoke to Ian in his office in Belfast. Ian, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Now today we're going to talk about your um, one of your academic interests, which is the history of force feeding during the First World War. Can you tell us how you became interested in force feeding as a subject? Um, well, I became very interested in the suffragette force feedings um, originally. Um, when I was doing research for my PhD, so that kind of led me on to thinking more about Irish hunger strikes and, and how Irish hunger strikes and force feeding uh, in different national contexts. Um, eventually, I uncovered quite a lot of hunger strikes and incidences of force feeding in the British um, National Archives, just the convict prisoners and people like that. And I was also very interested in why it was that Bobby Sands and other people weren't force fed later in the 1980s. At the time I started the project, there was a lot of debates about Guantanamo Bay where force feeding had arisen again. So I kind of wanted to know how we got from the suffragettes to, to modern day debates about force feeding. And obviously some of the, the history of force feeding that we, that we know today starts with the suffragettes and the pre-war context of, of the suffrage movement. Could you start by telling us, um, obviously in context of the First World War, what was the process of force feeding in Edwardian Britain? Um, well, the procedure was developed from the asylums originally, where insane patients had been fed if they couldn't eat. Um, but in 1909, the suffragettes decided to go on hunger strike. Uh, and partly because um, it was seen as, we can't really let them starve, force feeding was seen as a viable option um, for the suffragettes um, and in 1909 uh, a suffragette named Murray Lee decided to sue the, the government and the Home Secretary for unlawful assaults uh, and in that case it was established that force feeding was in fact legal, um, technically legal um, for the first time and it kind of kept in place then in the prisons. What is the actual physiological process of starvation? How does the body react as time goes on? How do people keep starving themselves? Because it's not an easy thing to do. Mm. By all accounts, apparently after about two days, um, you don't feel hungry anymore. Um, but what's happening inside is your body. It starts to consume its fats and excess fats, and particularly in the heart, which is why heart problems um, come up quite a lot in, in discussions of hunger strikes. Gradually, that process goes on until about seven days or so a week, um, by which stage all the prisoners seemed to become bedbound, they couldn't move. And like I said, they didn't develop mental health issues, but they experienced hallucinations and more emotional um, problems such as that. And then quite surprisingly, after around 15 days or so, not much happens to your body. You tend to be laid down, you're not moving too much. Um, if you look at the medical reports, the Thomas McSweeney, um, it's, it's, very, it's very repetitive every day. There's nothing new to report. Um, it's only really after about 60 or 70 days when um, problems like scurvy arise and um, it's not really the hunger that kills you as such, but whatever diseases you become quite susceptible to um, towards that 60, 70 day period. So if, if you were a suffragette or a, a prison during the First World War, what would be the process that the state or the prison authorities would go through to actually administer food to you against your will? Um, well, it, they defined it as artificial feeding to give it more of a medical veneer. Um, was of course, uh, the suffragettes always called it force feeding and to try and say, you know, it is an unlawful procedure which shouldn't be being done. So the terminology was very different. Uh, in terms of the procedure itself, um, you could be fed through a nasal tube or a stomach tube mainly or sometimes a funnel but more often than not it was a stomach tube that was used 
um, and what happened was the nurses and, and wards and other prison staff would typically pin the patient down so they couldn't um, struggle or resist the tube uh, and then the tube would pass through to the stomach from the mouth and generally a funnel would be added at the top and then then you could pour milk and eggs and things like that in a and kind of liquid food and what was the scale of force feeding before the first world war and who was mainly the the subject of force feeding um, it was mainly between 1909 and 14. the suffragettes tended to be the only people who were forced fed in England. Uh, there was a few trade unionists and people like that in Ireland, but generally it was the suffragettes um, up until 1914. And it was only really during the war that other groups decided to go on hunger strikes, like the pacifists in the First World War. Um, and occasionally Irish Republicans also went on hunger strike uh, in large numbers. Uh, generally, you know, the beginning of the revolution and just after the Easter Rising in particular. So we come, we come to the First World War. So what were the main groups who actually um, used hunger as a weapon, a political weapon, against the British state during the First World War? In England it was the pacifists, and they were the main group, and in Ireland it was mainly Irish Republicans. And so what was the motivation for pacifists or Irish Republicans to actually use starvation as a political weapon? Why? What was the, the, the value in doing that? I think in large part they'd been inspired by the suffragettes, um, because the suffragette campaign uh, the hunger strikes brought a lot of attention to that campaign and a lot of sympathy in many cases uh, and it also really disrupted the prison system. Um, certainly in Ireland during the revolution one of the, the key goals of Republicans was to um, disrupt the system and uh, the legal system and also the prison system as well and the basic structures of British administration so uh, certainly in Ireland that was um, one of the key motivations um, it kind of varied from different groups so the pacifists wanted to draw attention to themselves or maybe just saw it as a, a good opportunity to um, rebel against the prison system or, or to get particular rights in, in prison or special treatment usually usually political prisoner status so you know they, they wanted to distinguish themselves from the day-to-day -day convict prisoner and seeking political prisoner status was one way of doing that and when that was denied then hunger strike seemed like a viable and disruptive option. So if we look at the numbers of conscientious objectors and Irish Republican prisoners uh, during the First World War who were held in prisons and the, and the percentage of those force-fed, what, what sort of numbers are we talking about? Um, well, there was a very small, relatively small number of conscientious objectors who were force-fed but they were quite visible and gained quite a lot of attention. Um, one of them, Emmanuel Ribeiro, was force-fed for 13 months before he, he was released um, every day, three times a day presumably. Um, so it's a relatively small number, I, I guess it was a relatively small number of pacifists during the war in England, so it was all relative. Uh, in Ireland though, um, all the way from 1916 up until the early 1920s, uh, there was thousands of people on hunger strikes. Um, but most of them weren't force fed, they were released early, and that's because Thomas Ashe, uh, quite a prominent Republican, died in 1917 um, due to the effects of being force fed. Um, his heart gave way. Pneumonia tended to be the main cause of death if milk slipped into the lungs. Generally speaking, it was um, you know, heart problems for Thomas Ashe that, that was his main problem uh, and cause of death. And so, a relatively small number of Irish Republicans were force fed. Um, mainly because it would have been seen after Ashley's death as a very political act that could um, deepen the unrest in the country at the time. So that, that brings me on to that sort of reason. Why didn't, um, I suppose in terms of the conscience of objectors, when you've got thousands of men being killed in the trenches, why keep uh, a number of conscientious objectors alive, a group large large numbers of the population felt very little sympathy for? Mm. What was the political motivation for the British state to keep them alive? That's a very tricky question and a lot of people at the time who, who were opposed to their treatment, um, like the Guardian newspaper for example, that's exactly the question they were asking. 
the answers are a bit unclear really um, I don't know why someone would be forced for 13 months um, when he, he isn't really doing any harm to anyone and, and often what's interesting about the pacifists is that they unlike the suffragettes tending not to attack the prison doctors um, mainly because they, you know they were peaceful people and they will see that as an act of violence um, but in terms of the political motivations that's a little bit unclear generally it will be seen maybe as a punitive measure or maybe as a warning to other people who, who might want to not fighting the war and might choose to go in prison instead so I, I suspect it had um, a strong deterrence element. And then obviously we've got Irish uh, political prisoners who um, after the East Rising in 1916 uh, use hunger strike so why why would the British state keep them alive? There were there was groups in, in Irish prisons and groups in British prisons and the, the context the political context were, were quite different then um, generally the most of the hunger strikes I've looked at um, they were left to starve for about 15 days which is the point at which your body really begins to suffer permanent damage. Um, so it's at that point they tend to be quietly released and let out back into the community. So they weren't really kept in for that long. Um, but this helped to demoralise the police and the IUC, IRC in Ireland, uh, mainly because they got sick of arresting people, seeing them sent to prison, and then seeing them get released after 15 days. So that caused quite a lot of political problems and social problems for the IRC. Was there a real problem of, of fear of martyrdom in terms of, I suppose, Catholic prisoners, Irish prisoners maybe dying at the hands of the British state, especially given the the uh, reaction to the execution of a lot of the Easter Rising leaders during during late 16? Yeah, definitely. During the suffragette campaign, the main fear was that a female martyr uh, might occur. And that was the main problem. But in Ireland, obviously, the context is different. And in some ways, Thomas Ashe was a martyr in many ways, and the British government didn't really want too many of them, which is why they chose to release many Irish prisoners instead of force feeding or, or letting them starve. In that, going back to my, my point before about um, demoralisation of the police forces, obviously Terence McSweeney in 1920 is low to starve and that's partly because of the demoralisation uh, and change of policy uh, and taking a, a firmer stance on hunger strikers and of course he did become a martyr and he was, his fate was discussed internationally and still causes quite a lot of debate today. And what was the impact of starvation on these individuals, both conscience objectors and on Irish Republican prisoners, after the, they, they'd actually been released or maybe they'd achieved their political ends or their, the conflict was over? What were the long-term sort of physical and mental consequences of them? That hasn't really come up much in my research, unfortunately, but it's a really interesting question. And, and if you look at a lot of the Irish politicians of the 20s and 30s, a lot of them, you know, they did, they did die quite young of various causes, often related to the heart or lungs or you know the result of that physical weakening. Uh, in terms of mental consequences, um, even at the time the, the case studies I've looked at, um, the, the prisoners report a lot of emotional problems um, but they don't tend to, I've only found one case of someone who really developed serious mental health issues while due to being um, force fed or being on hunger strike um, and it's probable that he had you know, those before he went in the prison. Um, and even if you talk to Northern Irish ex-Republicans today, a lot of them would say, well, I feel, you know, that if, if now I'm a bit older, I can feel the effects, my, my heart doesn't feel as strong, or, or they talk about the um, former prisoners who had died at an early age. Um, so there's various different physical effects, but the prisoners do, former prisoners do report a, a lot of early deaths. So when you've got, I suppose, the medical profession being central to the administration of food to put somebody who doesn't want to receive it. What are the ethical dilemmas that the Edwardian medical profession faced and how do they overcome them? The main problem was that they presented and the government presented artificial feeding as a medical procedure that was saving lives 
and the problem being that uh, doctors according to the Hippocratic Oath aren't meant to give anyone medicine if they don't want it uh, so if they're defining food as medicine then it becomes seen as more as a human rights issue and uh, that was the main uh, kind of counter argument against World Sweden um, but they continued justifying it saying they, they were saving lives and that was a moral and personal duty to do so which is kind of their perspective on it. And did they do it in a sense of trying to prevent suicide which they may have seen as a religious or a moral sin? There was arguments that the hunger strikers were suicidal um, and, and again you see that still in relation to discussions of Bobby Sands and, and other more recent hunger strikers whereas the Catholic Church in Ireland got around this debate and they began to support the hunger strikers and they did that by saying well uh, these people don't intend to die but they see um, death as a possibility um, which is kind of different in many ways than suicide is that intent to kill yourself it is was portrayed as different. Obviously force feeding is quite an extreme measure and to do that to Republican prisoners or conscientious objectors is quite significant because obviously it does carry a degree of medical risk. Were there other tactics that the authorities could use to pressure either the individuals concerned or their families maybe to stop them taking that action? Yeah, and there was reports that, um, of the early days of a hunger strike, particularly group hunger strike, um, involving many different prisoners at the same time. Often they would leave, um, you know, they would suddenly improve the prison food, maybe to entice them to eat, or they'd leave like hot fish dishes outside, uh, hot smelling dishes outside the doors, you know, and generally, or they'd, they'd even leave them in the room, but often the prisoners reportedly threw the food out the window or back out onto the corridors. And so there was tactics to, to encourage um, people to eat, and the Republicans autobiographies which I believe I said no we definitely didn't get tempted at all to go back and eat. And what motivated these people to starve themselves? There, there was two um, main motivations um, as I mentioned earlier the desire to get a political prisoner status um, which also politically is quite a strong motivation it sends a strong message out to um, often to the government who is betraying Irish Republicans as radicals um, um, you know, it, it helps them to cement the idea that it's a valid political cause uh, and that they, once it's established as such, uh, the political prisoner status becomes quite important. It's, it's more symbolic in many ways, um, but often as well it's a mixture of things like bad prison conditions, um, people being bullied maybe by, by staff members, um, being given harsh treatment, um, maybe they don't like the food that's an offer so they refuse to eat it and then that is considered a hunger strike. So there's lots of different institutional conditions as well as the political conditions which stimulated the hunger strikes. And did these individuals demonstrate any particular personal traits in terms of um, their ability to keep going often for great periods of time? Um, well, I, I think they presented themselves afterwards as very strong, valiant, kind of um, well, Irish um, men, mainly. Irish women went on hunger strike too, but the main narrative kind of still is focused on men. Um, so that kind of masculinity aspect comes in. But in terms of the, the pacifists, they were more likely to present themselves as victims rather than as heroes. Um, you know, and so the, the way they present themselves and what happens to them. Um, and a lot of them do go off and write autobiographies after, um, after the war. And both Republicans and pacifists and um, the pacifists actually become really active in terms of prison reform in the 20s and 30s and so I think it depends how they choose to portray their actions and it can be quite different in different political contexts and circumstances. And finally where can people find out more about the interesting subject of force feeding? Uh, I, I published a book last year called A History of Force Feeding, Hunger Strikes, Prisons and Medical Ethics which you can read for free online on the Palgrave Macmillan website, it's open access uh, and also I'm developing, I've developed an exhibition at Kilman in Jail last year where, where parts of the book were, were 
put on display. Ian, thank you very much for your time. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.